When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcast and, you know, everywhere else in, uh, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure. Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead. Download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. Do you read Stephen King? Good news. There's a club for you. The Losers Club. Every Friday, us losers journey through the never-ending wastelands of King's Dominion. We sink our teeth into each of King's novels, dive deep into the lore, and review every adaptation. Even better, we're always having guests over. Thomas Jane, Will Wheaton, Mary Lambert, Mick Garris, the list goes on. So what are you waiting for? Join us as we read on through long days and pleasant nights. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with... It's an audio interview series presented by WFPK Independent Louisville at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sounds and the Consequence Podcast Network. If you're not a subscriber to the series, take that moment right now and hit that subscribe button to keep up with all of the interviews that we put out every single week. Uh, usually Monday, Wednesday, and Friday is a schedule. Plenty to keep up with all of your favorite artists. You can do that at iTunes and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, and anywhere else you get your favorite podcasts from. I'm Kyle Meredith. Today, my guest, Jill Kniff of Luscious Jackson. We're going to be heading back in time to talk about two of their records. Uh, the debut LP, Natural Ingredients, which hits 25 this year, released in 1994, and 1999's Electric Honey for its 20th anniversary. We'll hear how the band found their groove-oriented sound and usually uh, samples throughout their work and the influence of jazz that was happening in the New York scene in the early 90s. And their super quick ascension into, uh, like, stadium land, thanks to friends and the Beastie Boys and the Breeders and R.E.M. who took them on some of those uh, formative tours. And you may also remember the band uh, appearing on the uh, Clueless soundtrack around that time and in episode uh, of Adventures of Pete and Pete, which uh, we're going to hit on that just a little bit as well. 
And then for Electric Honey, you know, it, it was the album after they had had mainstream success with Naked Eye, and it ended up being the final record for a long time for the band. We'll hear why exactly that was, what life was like around that time, and what those songs mean to her these days. Luscious Jackson also put out two records in 2013, which had been the first new music in, uh, in 15 years at that point. So we're going to start out the interview back in uh, 2013 to talk about both of those, Magic Hour and Baby DJ. And by the end of the whole thing... We'll hear what the future looks like for the band. It's Kyle Meredith with Luscious Jackson. Hi, Kyle. This is Jill Kniff calling. Luscious Jackson, we've got two albums to talk about celebrating the big round anniversaries, uh, Natural Ingredients, 25 years old, Electric Honey at 20 years old. And, of course, I'd love to hear you know what you've been up to uh, since then, too, because the last time we heard from the band was 2013. You released two records, right? Yes, we did. We self-produced two releases. One was a kid's record called Baby DJ, and one was a full-length Luscious Jackson LP, <laughs> which was called uh, Magic Hour. And I loved Magic Hour. I know so, we, we played Are You Ready quite a bit over here, and it was so oh, great cool. to have you all back like that. And and I think that's, um this is probably the part I should say for the end of the interview, but I'm already greedy. It's like, well, it's been five years. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. So I can say that we loved making that album, and we did it with a uh, a crowdsource called Pledge Music. That was Magic Hour. And basically that we raised money through through crowdsourcing for that. And the company was called Pledge Music and it was a British company. We met with them and, you know, it was a nice situation for music only. And we were able to really have a good experience, although the, the workload was astronomical. <laughs> right. So as anyone who's ever done a Kickstarter will tell you, it's way more work than you realize when you start out in terms of the mail outs, you know, we had like over a thousand CDs to mail out. And, you know, that's great because people bought CDs. But, you know, basically it was just us and a few volunteers helping us like do these massive amounts of work. So that's part of the reason we haven't done it again. So <laughs> just the workload of that was not something we want to revisit. So, yeah, so it's, mo- it's mostly that. It's mostly like the time and the space to make new music if we just don't have it at the moment. So maybe eventually we'll get back to it, you know? Well, have, and the second one, I'll bring that up too with Baby DJ. Uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of artists or a handful of artists at least who who have went that route, you know, um, whatever scene they came from, you know, trying out the, the kid. And it's always been successful it, it, to certain degrees, you know, talking with uh, – you know, a fellow from the President's United States who goes by Casper Baby Pants these days, and the Verve Pipe have done that, and of course, like bare naked ladies and everything. And it's it's work. Was that the intention at all? Like, hey, let let's try to see what happens with uh, another route. Well, we had made that. Excuse me, we had made that record over a few years when we had little kids. You know, and um, we didn't really know how to release it. We'd spoken to people about it. We wanted to do a TV show, but everything just kept falling through. So it was just kind of sitting there. So. We had it. And then when the pledge thing came along, it was really like, you know, kids music just doesn't make the same dent and people aren't as interested in it is basically what we were told. And we were like, wow, okay, let's make a new album, like a complete new album from scratch and go back to our creative process and and see what we get. So I had a studio in my house, which I still have, and I'd been working behind the scenes in the music industry for a long time as songwriter and producer and such. So we were able to do that, you know, just in my studio 
and it was great. You know, it was so fun to be back in that creative zone and put that much time into it. And, you know, I love that stuff. So that's how that happened. It was sort of like, I think that your fan base is going to be more excited about a new regular album. That's what kind of the general gist of it was, you know. After the band had been away for a while, I, I think I was just happy to get the, you know, one record, but uh, it was like a whole bonus record on top of that, regardless of who the intended fan base was. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a lot of people with kids, mm-hmm. you know, so a lot of our fans were coming to that age, and, and they do listen to it. You know, we have a lot of people with kids who just love that, that Baby DJ album because they want good kids music and they want dance music. And, you know, that was kind of the intention is like you can dance with your family and bring that in and understand rhythm and have that party atmosphere because a lot of kids music is really folky and you kind of sit around on the ground and you like all sway back and forth. And, you know, so this was like, let's just put beats in this and get everybody dancing. So, you know, people have said they love it and have really enjoyed it. So that's cool. I mean, you you all were the perfect band to do something like that. And I'm going to use that as the seg to take us, you know, in the Wayback Machine uh, to, to 1994 for Natural Ingredients because... Because coming into the scene, especially off the, you know, your debut EP was all of this groove-oriented music that listening to, to now, now today still sounds fresh. And it still sounds, I, I don't know, how you listen to it versus how I listen to it is probably quite different. But for me, there is definitely a time and a place in that, but it doesn't sound exactly dated. Well, thank you. You know, I've been listening to a lot of stuff. I have a daughter now who's a musician, and um, she's 15. So I've been going back through music history with her stuff that I've loved and you know that was a time I would say early 90s where there were all these great records out that had that the beats on like the delight records you know mm-hmm. so we were listening to delight and groove was in the heart and then we we're listening to ESG which had was like this band from the Bronx with these three sisters and they played this amazing minimal dance music and so stuff like that that I'm pulling out for her she's like oh my god this stuff is amazing <laughs> We don't do this anymore. Why isn't music like this? What, where's all the grooves? And where is it? You know, so we're we're kind of on this like we're, we're constantly looking for grooves, and and it's not that it's not really the backbone of a genre currently, in yeah. the way that it was. Um, and there are a lot of related bands to what we were doing, so it's interesting. You know, it's like okay, this generation has like its own genres, which are great, but we don't have that one exactly. Which you know, some of it looping, you know, hearing a drum loop mm-hmm. and how that feels. A lot of that music was based on old like Motown drum loops and break beats. So that particular kind of groove that was like underneath all the hip hop and dance music of that time like people aren't really doing that right now so where did that come from for for you you know because obviously the loops and and the groove and sampling i mean sampling was a big part of what you all were doing too where did that did that come out of your own curiosity or how did how did you find that path you know when i look back i see how much we were part of a a scene or so to speak or we were all influencing each other so you've got the beastie boys who are our close friends who are putting our helping us put our music out though not like they weren't producing us or guiding us in terms of any of that we did all of that but that was part of the scene you know the hip-hop the de la soul and the delight tribe called quest all of those epmd all those groups that were coming out at that time were sampling so Public Enemy, Jungle Brothers, all the hip hop stuff. So we were just entranced with that stuff and wanted to add onto it our other elements. So we we loved post punk, we loved the slits, we loved, you know, all the female post punk groups. I loved Joni Mitchell. 
we loved Motorhead, you know, so we were like, how do we just slam all this stuff and use some of those loops underneath and create this new mix? And that's what we constantly set out to do is like, let's just put all our influences together and see what comes out, you know, so that's how it happened. Talking about how, you know, there's there's no grooves in that sort of way these days. And, and as you said, how you get in that way. Jazz also seemed to be, you know, in, in a really nice point for for that that's something i do wish would come back around and i don't know if that's being nostalgic or whatever but having that jazz with the beats and everything because that yes. that was like yes. the new york scene that's how i imagine the early 90s new york scene yes it was we had a lot of clubs we had giant step which was basically an event that he you know that was put on by a production company but it was all jazz and hip hop so all the jazz hip hop influence you know, I love jazz because my dad was in World War II and he was an older dad and I grew up with all this jazz. And I think a lot of the people of our age did. So that was like already in our childhoods. And then throwing in these these loops, it was like magic. You know, and I, I put that stuff on sometimes. And I'm like, I love this, you know, and Us Three. Remember how big oh, Us yeah. Three was? Right. And, and there was just, you know, Tribe Called Quest constantly using jazz and, you know, this is a real backbone of, of that time as well. And now that's gone. Like nobody listens to jazz now, or at least no kids are going to be relating to a track with jazz. It's unusual. Somebody could do it. And I'd be curious to see if it grabs them. Cause you have folks like, um, like Kamazi Washington, who's doing interesting things in jazz, but it doesn't seem to be reaching younger folks, I guess. And maybe it's cause it yeah, maybe I don't know about it. Maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe there's stuff out there. I'm just not aware of it. So I don't know. It needs a beat. That's what I, I think. That's what it is. <laughs> it needs that groove. It needs a groove. It does. Yeah. So, how did that work for you in, in the writing process? You know, if you don't mind going really deep in the weeds here, because writing a song on an acoustic guitar can be one thing, but I would fee- I, I would think that writing a song in that nature would be completely different. Yeah, it's it's writing. I mean, that it's like collage, and a lot of us have art backgrounds, so it made a lot of sense. I mean, fine art. Um, it made a lot of sense to be and you know, to be able to take this element and that element and just fuse them. And there there were keyboards back then, sampling keyboards, where you could play the samples up and down. I'm sure they still exist. You can play the samples up and down the keyboard, change the pitch, change the speed. So then you're able to really meld these things into, a, into something. Um, and that's, it was so much fun and so different. And we just loved it. So writing, you know, I grew up writing on acoustic guitar. So did Gabby. So, you know, that's how we played guitars and regular rock band and drums. And, you know, once these samples started coming in, it was just like, uh, now we found it. I'll point out one of those famously, you know, you use On and On by Gladys Knight on on City Song. That track becomes a, a moderate hit out of the gate for you guys. And then it seems, at least on paper in history, to move really, really quickly for you all. I mean... Uh, of course, you had the BC Association, so there you are opening up for them, and, and REM, you do that one in arenas, right? I mean, you kind of, it, it looks like you all go from, like, beginning to arenas really, really quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I don't think we understood how fast it was because we were just going on the ride. But yes, we did, we did go, we started with um, opening for the, first we opened for Betty Servert, which was like a, a band from Holland, uh-huh. which indie band, but then to the Breeders, which was like kind of a cool jump. Um, and they were going all over Europe. So we did that. Then we went with the Beastie Boys around mostly Europe. Then we did, you know, we did our own shows in between here as well. You know, I should add, we were constantly on tour. Um, but then we got to do the REM shows and those were huge so you know we were the opener to REM so the fans were really there for them but those are the kind of things that expose you 
to this huge audience. So that's that's what we were doing. And we did a ton of in-stores, a ton of radio performance. In-stores would be like performing in the store back when there were record stores. <laughs> and now there's like two. <laughs> so that would be like you get to the town, you go to the record store, you set up a mini gig, you perform maybe like 20 minutes, then you do all the signing of everything and people buy CDs and meet you. Then you go to the sound check. You know, this is all the same day. So you need to have a lot of energy. Then you go to the sound check, do that. Then you do more interviews at the sound check. Then you eat a quick dinner, get ready for the show, do the show, and then possibly a meet and greet. So that's why people get tired on the road. (laughs) And then you add in the other things. I mean, in this time, you know, right after this, uh, Saturday Night Live, House of Style, and I should point out The Adventures of Pete and Pete, which uh, had to be a cool experience. Yes. And people think that for some reason we're holding up Pete and Pete's season three or whatever, but we're not. Weird. Oh, like music rights. Yeah. We have no idea what that is. So just to clear the record, no one's ever talked to us from the corporate world about it, you know, so I don't know. Well, I guess we'll clear that. I don't know what that is. That air is cleared anyway. (laughs) But, you know, you do, you do have it. And that's what I say, you know, when, when things happen so quickly, did you find that you were quick to adapt to the situation? Yeah, we just went with it. You know, we were, we were a hundred percent all in, totally excited. It was our dream. We were all music kids, you know, club kids in New York that lived for music it was our religion of sorts. And that's what we believed in. You know, we believed that music was progressing. Music was great. Music was going to change everything, bring people together. You know, that was why we were so excited about it. Sort of like a mission of sorts. Like, we're just going to keep doing this. Wow, we're going to go out in the world and play our music and meet people. And, you know, it was really great. But you did. You did change things. And and I, I think it's been said, you know, for a lot of bands who are the ones to revolutionize a sound, they're, they're usually the ones left behind. And I don't know if you've ever felt that because it seems like you did. You were one of the bands that did help propel a sound. And a lot of bands came after you that maybe got a bit more of that spotlight. I guess so. I think that we were definitely a niche thing that, you know, we got fa- we had some hits, you know, so that was kind of cool. But I always felt like, gosh, we got out of New York and our sound was like much harder to explain. So people would kind of scratch their heads like, how are you combining these things? You know, and if we went to Europe, there would definitely be, you know, if we opened for the Beastie Boys, they'd be like, we want rap music. So it was like, okay, we're not just going to do hip hop. You know, we're doing like this blend of things. And it was definitely like a harder sell. New York, it made sense. New York is all blended. Everyone's at the clubs listening to the DJs throw this on, then that, then this, you know, different genre mixing. So it just made absolute sense coming from New York. And then you step out and you go, whoa, the world is not all from this place. And, you know, I think that's probably the thing that made us have the hardest time is our with our perspective, mm-hmm. our musical perspective. Like what I think, like the groove oriented bands that, that came after. And maybe that's the stuff that starts to turn into what became like the, the trip hop sound and everything. But I'll point out, like, that's how I read history. I think you all were always a very big band to me. And I was in the middle of Kentucky, you know. And, and of course, by that point, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't able to find you all till Naked Eye probably became a hit, you know, and, and, and really was all the way out there on MTV. But, uh, <laughs> you know, from that point on, you all might as well have been the biggest band in the world to, to, to someone in the middle of nowhere. Right. I think that 
that people experienced it in their own way. And, you know, when you're in the band, you're, you're constantly hearing from the record company how it has to be bigger and more. And we need this more, not enough. You know, so that's, that's part of the behind the scenes. Because it's a commercial endeavor from a major label, any label, small, big, they have to sell records. And they've invested so there's this whole business structure that you don't think about when you're young and you're having fun. And, you know, we, we did the best we could to, like, have a great time and then interface with people who are like, we need a bigger hit. We need more hits. This radio station is not playing it. We need blah, 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 blah. That's kind of the stuff that's going on all the time. What a way to buzz kill the fun right there. <laughs> it's like you have to just separate yourself, you know, and just be like, okay, you guys just talk to our manager about that. Well, and they try to kind of set set a, a line so you go and have fun and you experience it with your fans, which is the main fun. Right. You go out and you have this great live show and you meet people and they're having so much fun. And, you know, so we were able to do that. So that's good. Yeah. And, I, you know, I'll quickly point out, I mean, just favorites like, I mean, here was such a great song and deep shag and energy suckers. And, and, and it's a freaking great record. So then we'll uh, so so we'll jump uh, you know a few years there and, and we'll jump over you know the the middle era and, and head to 1999 because that's when Electric Honey comes out which ends up being the final Luscious Jackson record for a little while but this was the first record after sort of mainstream breakthrough success with Naked Eye and the record Fever in Fever Out did that have an effect on how you wanted to be a band at that point having mainstream success I mean, we just wanted it to continue, I guess, and we wanted to have radio hits because when you have radio hits, then people go to your shows and you can play more. You can have a salary of some kind. You know, it's basic stuff. So we wanted that and we did our best. And I think that the radio had changed and the rock stations that we'd formerly been on, you know, like Naked Eye actually was played on rock, modern rock stations, mm -hmm. and then was able to go to top 40. Like those stations at that time stopped playing female artists and the female artists were put on to, there were these female stations from Lilith Fair, which I loved Lilith Fair, but this was an unfortunate right. thing that happened. So the, the female stations that they started playing music on weren't really very powerful. And the modern rock stations really were and that's sort of what happened to our record it was like lady fingers was the single we were rolling it out you know everything was looking good the video was cool everything was nice and then like nope can't oh. get it on the radio properly so that was kind of the end of the whole thing you know and if you don't have radio you on a major label you, you don't have much longevity because that's what they do and what a really crappy time for rock radio already because it was that was that was when things started <laughs> really getting aggressive that's when the active rocks yes. thing came in that's when you know all, all of those bands you know and he, i mean you can see that you know as people just look back at the uh, the 20th anniversary of, of woodstock 99 i mean it's just painted right there in popular culture you know what what happened and it happened so quickly uh last year i was talking with uh, with dan wilson you know about how the semisonic was able to sneak that record in at the last second you know before everything changed because it happened overnight and and i remember it well and remember hating it at that moment in, in, in real time yeah it was it was like the curtain you know drew closed and this whole other thing happened which i, I think we just felt totally uh, you know disconnected from we'd been on these great tours like we were on lollapalooza that was this really interesting mixes of bands you know and 
hip hop, rock, old, you know, they'll have like George Clinton on there. They'll have Tribe Called Quest. They'll have Beastie Boys. They'll have Smashing Pumpkins. They'll have whatever. It was the Breeders, you know, like these really interesting mixed tours. And then it was like, okay, this whole thing is different now. It just really felt like the end of an era by the time we, we kind of brought out our last album. Which, uh, you know, point out, uh, as I read, you all are the only band to have played a Lollapalooza and Lilith at the same time, which says, I guess, a lot about to, to all of the audiences you spoke at it at, at once. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those were great tours. Lilith was fantastic, you know, and, and so was Lollapalooza. So those were also how we, we got our exposure. You know, with, with Lollapalooza, we, that was probably our big, I guess it's like a break of sorts, sort of like the REM thing where it's just the number of people who saw us, the number of autographs we signed and shirts and CDs that we were signing. You just saw people loving it and, and gathering sort of out. We were on the second stage and we have photos of like all these people for the first time. We've gone, whoa, look at all these people. <laughs> wow. You're not playing a tiny club, you know? You know, a little bit more about Electric Honey. Did I read right that you studied opera before going into the record? I did. I studied opera with this teacher in Manhattan who's recently died. Her name was Marnie Nixon, and she was actually a singer for movies and she did I think she did Natalie Wood's voice in West Side yeah West Side Story so she was a behind the scenes she would fill in the vocals for people so she was much older and it was really interesting to learn that style of singing from her you know just learning that at all it's like wow but it did help my singing a lot I learned a lot and it improved my vocals I think I mean was that just a a personal quest right there yeah it was just like I want to improve my vocals I tried some other teachers someone recommended her she was a really cool person and she taught me a lot and i carry it with me to this day like a lot of the stuff she taught me so it was really cool did pairing down to a trio change the dynamics of the writing for you all going into that record yes it did and you know vivian went off and did another group called dusty trail with josephine wiggs from the breeders Mm -hmm. so they had their own separate band going and we had ours but you know we kind of went back to working for for the previous for the one with naked eye that record we used we used we worked with daniel lenoir who was a really famous producer and he produced u2 and was that was remarkable and also really educational so this next one we went back to our original collaborator tony mangurian and for this is the 99 record and we also used a few other producers and we kind of brought it back from like into track by track i guess right. and thinking of each track with a separate producer um, as opposed to one producer for the whole thing. And yeah. we did a lot of it in New York. We were able to go around. That's kind of how we're used to doing it. We kind of go around to studios and work in the studios. And in the, the Lenoir record, we were in New Orleans for a lot of it in a huge, in his studio, Kingsway, which was magnificent. So it was just, we're just trying everything, you know, just we're, experimenting. Yeah, I, I love a quote that you had around there. Somebody asked you about the record and you said, this record is me better at life. Oh, wow. Interesting. <laughs> I think they were th- talking about maybe the lyrics of the themes and everything, but I love that you said it's it's about me better at life. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. It was always like very personal and trying to get improve and get better, you know, get healthier in every way. And, you know, I continue on with that idea. Right. Um, and I think, you know, the lyrics, a lot of the lyrics are personal in that way. So there is a lot of, you know, my own life in there, my own experiences. And I actually went into songwriting after that and saw how different that approach is than what is usually done in terms of like providing songs for artists. So it was, it was a big shift. Like we don't really care about your personal life. Now you need to just write <laughs> something that works for this person, you know? So it's interesting. 
Well, I, I love that one uh, just as much. I mean, I can dump the compliments on you for all of these. <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it, it, I think you answered at the beginning, and, and it's always the question, but do you foresee that there will be any more Lester Jackson records in the future? I think we all are open to it and is what also shows, you know, we were doing shows until 2016 we would always do like we did a new york show we we had a few shows in 2014 kind of bigger like bigger cities and then we can't get away that much because people are in jobs and they have kids you know so it's not we don't have that free time to just go and we're not independently wealthy nor do we have free time (laughs) so there you have it we're we're average americans with kids so basically people have jobs and that's been the biggest problem. I think we'd all like to do it at some point and that we still exist as a band. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, we actually just started making t-shirts. They're available on Amazon. So we brought back a lot of our t-shirts designs um, with a friend of mine. So it's, you know, our vintage nineties graffiti logos and search a Manny cover natural ingredients. So those are all on um, Amazon right now, which is kind of fun. Yeah. And, you know, we, we, we may do music when we have some time. It, it really is just that it's just people. Kate lives in California um, and she's a producer on TV show. So she works on James Corden. Oh, that little thing. And she's right. And it's like a, it's, it's, it's very, you know, you really have to devote yourself to these things. And we also have kids. And um, my kids are now older, but they have younger kids, Gabby and Kate. So so people are just very busy. Right. And, uh, you know, we've tried a few times to kind of say, let's do another show. And it's sort of like, I just can't pull it off right now. So, you know, we'll see. We might be like old gray-haired ladies <laughs> with flowing gray hair. That's something that I used to talk about with Gabby. It's like, maybe we'll be like those old ladies with purple hair. Uh-huh. You know, they dye their gray, white hair, purple, <laughs> and we'll be out there with our guitars, you know. <laughs> I would show up for it. But, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, people would come, you know. I'm like, you know, we're still the same people inside. We just look old now. We don't look old, but in 20 years, we're going to look like seniors, you know, or 30 years. <laughs> so we'll just be like these long, flowing gray hair. Emmy Lou Harris does it, and she's a friend of mine. Exactly. And she keeps going, and her fans keep going, and she looks great, and she is great. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what's the problem, you know? It's just by then, maybe we'll have a little more time. So we're kind of just in the thick of it right now. And then maybe like five more years, it's going to slow down and we'll be able to regroup, you know, or maybe in three years. Who knows? Well, there there are those artists, you know, uh, Sade, uh, Fiona Apple, both of those come to mind. Like it's it's now like a record every 10 years. So, you know, if you do that, you're still on track. Right. So (laughs) we could we could potentially do that. Right. Honestly, uh, you know, uh, somewhat pun intended with the last record, Magic Hour, but it seems like the magic is always there with you all. And it was so great to hear it then. So if it happens again, uh, I I will so be looking forward to it. All right. You know, I realize that, too. And and, uh, people, you know, as as I am with artists I love, I like I love Nana Cherry, for example. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. she's someone I've loved since the late 80s. And she had Buffalo Stance. And she's someone I always buy her records. And it may be every three or five years or 10 years. But when it comes out, I'm going to the show. I want to hear what she's doing. You know, so that's how it is. If you love the artist, you're going to go. And that we know that. So we always think about that. You know, like, oh, wait, maybe we could do this again, you know, when we have a little more free time. Yeah. So She put out a record this year, didn't she? She did. And I was listening to it. It's very dark. It's, it's you know, she you think of her as being a pop artist, but her last two things have been very not pop 
um, more experimental. And, you know, I think with Trump's election, she she made something kind of just dark. You know, I like right. it a lot. I've got to go back and listen to that one because I remember it kind of I remember seeing it and thinking, oh, cool. And then there's so much music out there. And I think it just went away. Exactly. Really quickly, so, yeah, I, I listen to it a lot. And she she doesn't do a huge tour. You know, she'll play like New York. So she lives in Europe. So basically, like, I listen to it a lot, but be prepared that it's not pop. And it's it's good, though. Absolutely. It has yeah. some really good stuff on it. Check it out. Cool. Yeah. Well, Jill, thank you so much for the talk today and, and heading back on these records. Uh, I, I really can't thank you enough. It's so great to talk to you for the first time. And uh, and I'll look forward to whatever happens next. Yes, please. We'll, we'll be in touch. <laughs> All right. Thank you All so right, much. Bye. All right. Bye. Big old thanks to Jill kind of from Luscious Jackson. Natural Ingredients, 25 years old. Electric Honey, 20 years old. And I guess technically Magic Hour and Baby DJ, 5 years old. So also, I want to mention, outside of the music thing, Jill spends a lot of her time these days concentrating on a different kind of artwork, more of the visual kind. You can actually see that artwork on her website, jillkniffstudio.com. Her last name is spelled C-U-N-N-I-F-F, jillkniffstudio.com. And she tells me she's going to be doing another show and performance in New York City in 2020. And the cool thing about these showings is in those performances, she does play some of the classic Luscious Jackson songs. So you get really two great sides of an artistic personality right there. So make sure to keep an eye on her website and uh, and social media spots as well. And that does it. Uh, before you get out of here, don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening from right now. Again, you can do that to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Wherever's good for you in the in the podcast world, hit that subscribe button. We put out interviews every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. After that, head to WFPK.org. That's where I do a show Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern, an hour full of brand new songs, anniversary celebrations, music news, and clips from these interviews as well. That's WFPK.org. Consequenceofsound.net has your music and film news. You can also find me at Twitter at Kyle Meredith and Facebook slash Kyle Meredith. And that does it for another edition. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.